and welcome to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller. And I'm Martin Cook. And today is our second episode of our Century Series, where we cover 10 films from each decade from 1920 to 2020. And despite the world crumbling all around us, we're still here to give you that hot, hot content you've come to crave from us. After all, if you're going to be stuck at home for the foreseeable future, you might as well drink, watch movies, and listen to us talk about those movies. As long as we still have electricity and a decent Wi-Fi connection, we'll be here to the bitter end. How's the apocalypse treating you, Martin? Uh, it's not too bad. Not too bad here in up in Canada. I, I got a whole bunch of uh, social distancing juice at the liquor store yesterday, so <laughs> I'm, I'm good to ride out the storm for a little while later, I think. Yeah. I think um, I, I think it's uh, it's very appropriate that we're doing this series at this particular time uh, for a few different reasons. One, um, nobody, including us, can actually go to new movies anymore because all the movie theaters are closed down. Uh, so it's perfect that we're looking back at old ones instead of talking about non-existent uh, new releases. Right. Uh, two, a lot of people are sitting at home right now with lots of time on their hands, so hopefully they'll have time to check out the podcast, but also why not? Check out some Hollywood history while watching a few of these movies. And finally, on a more depressing note, I think this could actually be a watershed moment for the movie industry. Uh, I mean, it's no, it's no secret that theater attendance has been declining in recent years. Companies have been trying to, some companies have been trying to find ways to bypass theaters altogether. Obviously, the streaming uh, services like uh, Netflix have been have been doing it um, kind of in a, in a surreptitious way. But I think uh, a lot of the big studios are also trying to see if this is a business model that'll that'll float. And this shutdown of theaters, I think, just speeds that process along. And not to be too overly dramatic, but I think that if movie theaters are still closed by the time we move into July, it's going to have a lasting impact on the film industry. And I'm not sure how many theater chains will be able to survive. And and I'm, I'm not just talking about lost revenue, but fundamentally changing the way the the viewing, changing the viewing behavior of the general public. I mean, I'm sure there might be a big surge against once theaters are open again for a few months. But if people are now used to doing without, and studios and production companies have begun to explore new business models, I think this could be the beginning of the end of the theater-going experience as anything but a niche market. Yeah, um, I unfortunately have to agree with that. I mean, we're already seeing massive tentpole films being pushed back up to a year, especially with the uh, the Fast and Furious 9, the, a full year, James Bond getting pushed back seven months. We never know when Wonder Woman's going to come out. I mean, we're entering the tentpole season with a big-budget blockbuster popcorn season in May, and we're not going to have any movies for the foreseeable future. And a lot of... Some of the studios are already adapting the best way they can on the fly with Disney releasing uh, Frozen 2 and Onward is coming out on April 3rd on Disney+. Plus. And then uh, we have studios releasing movies that have only been out for like two or three weeks, but they can't show them anymore, so they might as well earn their money in other ways by releasing them on demand, like um, Emma and The Invisible Man. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's. It's obviously not the same situation. But if you think back to the writer strike in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, mm-hmm. 
it fundamentally changed the way that people watch television, right? Uh, mm. There was a massive rise in unscripted reality shows, and the viewing public, for whatever, God knows who, what reason, decided that they liked them. <laughs> and uh, so now there are hundreds of reality shows and a much lower percentage of scripted shows than there were before. So people's behavior, and in this case, viewing behavior, can change as a result of outside forces. And once they do, it's it's very difficult to go back. Yeah. These, I mean, uh, I, I might be, I might be a little too alarmist on that, um, but I think it, it could be the, as I said, the beginning of the end of anything but a niche market for for theater going. We'll see. Yeah. I hope not. I really hope not because I love watching movies in theaters. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard to replicate experience unless you know you live in a fucking mansion where you have a, a home theater in the basement and you can listen to it as loud as you want in your recliner a la Quentin Tarantino or Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but for the rest of us, that's where we go to get the full experience. And if you don't if you live in an apartment and you don't want neighbors calling the cops on you, you can't turn your sound bar all the way up and it's it's where you go for the full sound, visual, immersive experience. Like I love going to see new movies in Dolby. Plus, it's a uh, you know it's it's an attraction, especially when a new Star Wars or like a new Pixar movie comes out. You, know, you want to go see that and experience it with complete strangers just to see their reactions. Exactly. Yeah. And and when I say niche market, I mean it could be that that niche is a pretty big. I mean, it could be only massive um, $200 million budget films, yeah. which I guess is, is a little more than a niche. That's a, that's a big market. But that would mean a lot of different movies might just get to the point where they just said, no, we're not going to be putting it in, in, in theaters out anymore. Yeah, and it sucks because we're kind of seeing a resurgence in independent film, especially when it comes to A24, the production studio. I mean, they release quality films on a monthly basis, and that's what I'm scared of most. I mean, you know, Disney and Warner Brothers, they're going to be fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They got so much money in the war chest, and they already have films that, that are completed. They're just waiting for the time to, when this all passes over, to release them. So, yeah, I'm not worried about those, but I am worried about the more boutique studios that put out the more original kind of content that we're going to miss. But maybe they can adapt and go the streaming route like a lot of other places are. Yeah, and, and the theater chains, those are the ones that I think are really in danger right now. Um, but who knows, maybe you know things always adapt, maybe the rules will change again, and uh, we'll be back to how it was actually in, in the 20s and 30s when uh, production companies and studios actually owned theaters as well. And so, mm -hmm. you know, Disney could put up a few of their own theaters in every major city to show their blockbusters mm -hmm. or, or something like that. Things adapt, but... I, I, th I don't think it's overselling it too much by saying that there probably will be a change in the industry following this. Yep, I agree. So let's go from depressing to depressing, because we're about to go into the Depression-era 30s with this episode, going 1930 to 1939. The reckless decadence of the Roaring Twenties has come to a crashing halt. The stock market's been decimated. People around the world are jobless and starving. The Dust Bowl cripples the American agricultural industry. Fascism is on the rise in continental Europe, and the Great Depression is upon us. Wait, is this today's headline? Or... <laughs> but at least Americans are allowed to legally drink again, so it's not all bad. The hardest times make the greatest art, though. So what are we covering today, Martin? 
Well, we're going to cover 10 movies, including 1930's All Quiet on the Western Front, 1931's Little Caesar, 1933's King Kong and Duck Soup, 1936, Swing Time, 1937, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, 1938, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and three films from 1939, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, The Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind to kick off the decade, uh, to end off the decade. So I think one, before we get into a quick discussion about the actual movies, uh, I think we should talk about a, a significant development that happened in the 30s, and that was the introduction of the Hays Code. So as we saw in our exploration of the exploration of the 1920s, the movie industry was kind of making things up as it went along back then. There weren't really hard and fast rules about anything. And this was also true of any sort of regulation of the industry. So within a short time, some people, whatever their motives, started becoming concerned about the things they were seeing in film that they deemed inappropriate. This wasn't helped by a number of high-profile scandals involving Hollywood celebrities, including charges of rape against star Fatty Arbuckle, that led much of the United States to believe that there was a moral mm -hmm. deficiency in the film industry. Because of this, there was a legitimate fear by industry leaders of government action to curtail the industry, helped by a 1915 Supreme Court decision that ruled that freedom of speech didn't extend to film for some, for some reason. In fact, 37 states had already started to enact some sort of censorship legislation. So how did the film industry react? Well, they took a page out of baseball's playbook, which was dealing with its own crisis of confidence after the rigging of the 1919 World Series, and hired someone to help them self-regulate. In this case, it was a member of President Harding's cabinet, a man named Will Hayes, who became the leader of self-regulation under an organization founded in 1922 called the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America. Working with a number of Catholic clergymen, in fact, including one by the name of Joseph Bream, who became famous as the sort of lead censor and enforcer for the organization, Hayes developed a code of behavior for the industry by 1930. At first, it was voluntary and not very well enforced, but by 1937, sorry, by 1934, every film had to be submitted to the MPPDA for approval and to receive a certificate in order to be distributed. This code lasted into the 60s and completely dominated the content the movie industry produced in the intervening decades. It was finally replaced in 1968 by the MPAA film rating system that we know today, or at least a version of the rating system that we know yep. today. So with this came a long list of shit that the movie industry could no longer do. There was a list of don'ts and be carefuls as proposed in 1927. These include, bear with me here, because they didn't like a lot of the stuff that the film industry was doing. Pointed profanity. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, or, unless they are used in the respectful, proper religious ceremonies, hell, damn, God, and every other profane and vulgar expression. Any yes, both God and Gad. Yeah, G A W D was also not allowed. Any uh, any actual or suggested nudity, so no silhouettes. Uh, any lecherous notice of any character in the picture. Uh, the illegal trafficking of drugs. Any inference of sex perversion. White slavery. It was not allowed, but black slavery totally fine. Uh, relationships between the white and black races also banned. Sex hygiene and venereal diseases could not be shown or mentioned. Scenes of childbirth, in fact, or in silhouette. 
no children's sex organs, no ridicule of the clergy, and no willful offense to any race or creed. And I, I, I should point out, of course, when you say um, uh, any inference of sex perversion for people in, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, that, of course, included any sort of reference to homosexuality. Of course, of course. And there's also a list of things that they couldn't um, either satirize or condemn or insult in any way, and that includes the American flag. They couldn't comment on international relations. They couldn't uh, show arson, the use of firearms, no theft, robbery, any kind of violent crime, no brutality. Uh, You can show murder, but not the technique of committing murder because they were afraid that it would be like a how-to guide to murder, like murder for dummies. So definitely no blood spattering everywhere as people are being killed. Yep, no torture, no hangings or electrocution, no sympathy for criminals, which is why we saw, um, like, there was a time in the 20s and 30s where gangster films were the most popular and everybody started to sympathize with the gangsters because they were doing the things that us law-abiding citizens could only dream about doing. And they thought that would lead to the moral degradation of society, so every criminal had to get their comeuppance in the end. No sedition, no cruelty to children or animals, no branding of people or animals, the sale of women. I don't know why that was a uh, thing they had to point out, (laughs) but uh, no rape or attempted rape, no men and women in bed together, and that one of the most famous examples of that is in TV with I Love Lucy, where Ricky and Lucy were you know, married with a kid, but they had to sleep in separate beds that were like six feet apart. <laughs> no deliberate seduction of girls. You couldn't make fun of the institution of marriage. You couldn't show surgical operations, the use of drugs. You couldn't um, lambast law enforcement. or And the last one, excessive or lustful kissing which is my favorite because a lot of directors, most notably Alfred Hitchcock, loved to get away with that. (laughs) So, yeah, it's a very long list and basically encompasses anything that you'd want to do in film. Some of it obviously (laughs) probably came from from a good good place in terms of motivations, why people wanted outlaw, that kind of thing, Uh, excessive cruelty and, and showing rape and things like that. I mean, aside from the obvious problems with censorship in general, those aren't in and, them, in and of themselves problematic. Uh, but the problematic parts get in when you were talking about things like not being able to show uh, relationships between uh, people of different races, uh, any sort of ban on any sort of homosexuality, uh, any uh, bans on, as you mentioned, ridicule of the clergy or of nations, even in many cases, if that included... Something like Nazi Germany, where right. a lot of a lot of films were not allowed to be made because they were ridicule, ridiculing uh, the the ideology of 19, of uh, of Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. Before finally, in World War II, everybody woke up. Oh, hey, this guy really is the bad guy. Uh, so yeah, they, it became very problematic in a number of ways, and also, as you said, just led to ridiculous situations where married people on film were constantly shown in beds way apart in rooms and, and things like that. So yeah, it was it was generally pretty absurd, and that dominated Hollywood for for a good part of three decades, four decades almost. 
right, like the rule was the hard and fast rule was that you couldn't show two characters kissing for more than three seconds. And as I said before, Alfred Hitchcock found a brilliant way around this rule in his 1946 film Notorious, where he had a a two and a half minute kissing scene, but they just broke off. They they stopped kissing for a second every three seconds. So I mean, they, they were making out for almost three minutes, but they just had to part lips every three seconds to, to get around the Hayes code. And that just shows you how arbitrary and absurd this whole thing was. Now, all, all the ridiculous and, and harmful aspects of the, the Hayes code aside, there were some, some slight positives. Well, two, I, I'll point out one, uh, that writers subsequently talked about is that it actually in some ways forced them to be a little more creative. They, mm-hmm. they had to use more nuance instead of just coming right out and saying, Oh, this character says he wants to have sex with that character. They had to find very subtle ways of doing that, that somehow escaped the, the view of these, uh, Catholic censors. Um, so that was, I guess, a positive, led to a little more creative writing. Another sort of in retrospect um, weird positive about this is one of the things that you mentioned in there was, um, uh, where was it, cruelty to children or animals. Mm. And one of the negative consequences of the end of the Hayes Code in the 60s was that that was the avenue that the American Humane Society had to review films. Mm-hmm. Was was through the uh, through the MPPDA, and then when the Hayes Code was removed and no longer in force, that unfortunately led a, uh, led to a vacuum. And for a good couple of decades, there was a lot of animal t- animal cruelty in film. Uh, right. So that was one sort of unexpected negative aspect to the ending of the Hayes Code in the 60s. Yeah, and I think the most explicit example of that that I can think of right offhand was when uh, Francis Ford Coppola killed a live bull, an actual live bull on the set of Apocalypse Now. I was just thinking about that scene, yeah. Yeah, that's really hard to watch when you know that that's a real animal. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, generally, overall... um, a negative for for Hollywood for three decades, and it came in right in the middle of this time period that we're talking about. A few small positives, but uh, generally it was uh, over overly over um, uh, over reliance on censorship is, is not good for artistic expression. I think that's just sort of a general rule. Right. And this then and, and this was massively overdone censorship for for three decades in Hollywood. Right, so this got abandoned around the mid to late 60s where people just started ignoring it, even though it was still in place. And it led to the rise of the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, the slogan that you see at the bottom of every film ever made since the early 70s. And uh, that's when the rating system was put in place instead of just an overall blanket ban on certain things. That's when we got things like G, PG, PG-13, R, and X, and NC-17. So it's a, it's a much better, much more effective way of censoring things. Of, well, it's not even really censoring. It's just letting people know what they're about to see. Which Yeah, is allow, allowing people to self-censor if they want to. Exactly. So now that we've discussed that and that big change that happened in the 1930s, let's dig into the movies. Zach, kick us off. 
All right, the first one is All Quiet on the Western Front, released by Universal Studios in 1930. It was number 54 on the original 1998 AFI Top 100 list, but it fell off the list completely in 2008, which I'm kind of disappointed with. It's based on the novel of the same name by Eric Maria Remarque. It's directed by Lewis Milestone, screenplay by George Abbott. It stars Lou Ayers and Louis Wilhelm. It's a... It's one of the first real anti-war films. It's about how patriotic, uh, vivacious, wide-eyed, doughy young men can become ruthless, disillusioned, killing machines through propaganda and poor leadership. A, A group of young German teenagers get just stirred into a frenzy by this overzealous professor that they have that thinks... Uh, going and dying for the fatherland is the greatest honor that a young man can have. So they leave their small town lives behind to go fight for the fatherland in World War One, only to realize that war isn't all it's cracked up to be. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that this was immediately banned in Nazi Germany once Hitler <laughs> rose to power because it just talks about all the horrors of war and how it's always useless in the end so what'd you think of it uh i thought i thought it was, I thought it was great it was uh, so very different from any of the war movies we had seen previously and and most of the war movies that came afterwards i mean it explicitly says right out front uh which is actually the opening of the book that it is not an adventure mm-hmm. and whereas all other war movies are mostly portrayed as sort of adventure movies this clearly was not meant to be that and so i thought that was that was a, an interesting change uh the, the the very first scene as you point out the overzealous teacher the, the very first thing it does is mop mock the very propaganda that's used to get people into into war mm-hmm. and and to get uh, young men to enlist and so, yeah, it was just, it was so different from most war movies in that way that, uh, that I liked it. There, there were a few, th- I mean, the, the actors and the way they spoke and their mannerisms were so clearly an American that mm. even though they're supposed to be Germans, it threw me at times. I kept having to think, oh, no, wait a minute. These are the Germans and they're fighting against the Americans because I kept thinking, oh, no, those are the Americans just because of the way uh, the actors were. Um, so there were a few little things like that. I, I maybe also could have used a little bit more about the lives of these kids beforehand. All we got basically was them sitting in a classroom and and that one guy wanted to be a writer because he had written one act of a play. That's basically all we knew about them. So it might have been a little more impactful if we knew a little bit more about them before their lives got destroyed. But um, but yeah, I thought I thought it was I thought it was great. See, I'm gonna have to disagree with you on that last point there because okay. I, I don't I don't think you were meant to really identify with each individual character i think you were supposed to feel their situation so that anybody could be in their shoes and we're supposed to i mean there is you know there is the the main guy the protagonist but we follow this group of kids that go out and they just get picked off one by one by one until there's nobody left at the end and i think if we got if we spent time i mean it's already a pretty long movie so if we spent time really getting to their backstories i think that would have made it off message for what the story was trying to say 
Fair enough. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, sort of the, the nameless nameless soldier. Uh, man, they really had tremendous mental health techniques back in those days. <laughs> basically involved belittling anyone having any trouble and punching them in the face to knock them out so they'd shut the hell up if they were having shell shock. Or, it always you know, works. What was called shell shock back then, basically right. massive PTSD. Uh, yeah, there, there were a lot of things about the movie that were great. There. I love there, there's this whole discussion where they're sitting around at one point having lunch, a discussion about how the war actually started. And, and they go through all the different possible explanations because basically they're asking, how did we get here? Yeah. And one person said, oh, well, you know, this, uh, uh, this country uh, offended the other country. And the, and the one guy responds, how can a country offend another country? <laughs> you mean to say that this mountain over here offended that field in that country? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, I, I just love that discussion about who, how, how wars actually start and who really benefits. Yeah, there were so many great philosophical scenes that didn't feel too forced. Like, it felt like something that soldiers would actually discuss when they're hungry and just sitting underneath a tree with downtime and, you know, waiting for the, just the next shell to explode. I think I think my my favorite scene of the movie was when um, the main guy comes back and he's treated like a coward by the, the, the kids. He goes back to his school and the professor is like, oh, tell him how great it is to be in the war and fighting for the fatherland. And he's like, nah, dude, this shit fucking sucks. <laughs> like, all my friends are dead. I've, I'm almost dead. I've been wounded severely. And we're not really fighting for anything because World War I was the biggest waste of life in human history. And all the kids just call him a coward because they're, they, they are where he was at the start of the movie. So it's a really nice uh, coming full circle, even though that scene happens around halfway through the film. And... Yeah, it was just a really nice uh, way to tell that kind of story because you're always going to have the young kids, the young naive kids that don't know anything about the world at large. They just want to go out there and fight. And But this guy's trying to tell them the truth. I mean, he's been there, and they just call him a coward. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that scene kind of uh, resonated me, with me in a, in a strange way. After I after I uh, came back from Afghanistan, I was asked to to speak on a panel to to other people who might have been going over to to Afghanistan, and um, I sort of, Are you sure you you really want me to be the one speaking about this? By this time, I had completely lost faith in in the mission we were trying to accomplish over there. So I thought, yeah, maybe I'm not the best propagandist for this particular role. Sort of the exact same thing that that guy was. Well, I mean, not the exact same thing. He obviously had a much more hellish experience than my experience in Afghanistan. But, mm. it, yeah, that, that scene definitely resonated. Yeah, then especially the, the final scene was just so tragically poetic where he finally sees a beautiful thing in that butterfly and he just reaches out to grab it and gets sniped. And that's the end of the movie. And it really leaves you feeling... With, leaves you with a sunken feeling, but it also has a, a fantastic message for anybody that wants to watch it. And yeah, uh, and, and that yeah, that final shot with the superimposed screen with the the soldiers marching off, superimposed with uh, the the graveyard with just rows and rows and rows of crosses. Oh yeah, was, yeah, that's really uh, just powerful. Incredibly powerful last last shot. Yeah, just a, a short aside. This is. Uh, <laughs> an indictment of the American public school system, but basically my entire education of World War One came in my middle school civics class when my teacher just put this movie on, and that was it. 
Like, <laughs> and we, had, we, we had no context for it. And, you know, I was probably 14. No, no, not even that. Like 12 or 13. And he just throws this this black and white movie from 1930 on. I'm like, I don't give a shit about this. Like, so here, kids, enjoy. Yeah, yeah so yeah, most most everybody in the class just slept through the whole thing, or like took notes, or did homework, and yeah, it was <laughs> watching it a second time around. Uh, about 20, you like got 20 a little more like, out of it this time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and that, that's a that's a theme that'll come up later in one of these other movies, but I'll save that for then. Okay. All right, let's move on then to Little Caesar in 1931. This is a pre-code because, as we said, the code started getting really enforced in 1934. It was a pre-code gangster movie by Warner Brothers that premiered January 25th, 1931. It is recognized as one of the first true gangster films. I mean, there were a few others around the same time, um, but it was one of the first big ones, and it remains incredibly influential. It's number nine on AFI's greatest gangster films, uh, Rico, the villain is number 38 in the greatest villains list and the line mother mercy is this the end of rico is number 30 uh, number 73 on the top 100 movie quotes list it was nominated for best adapted writing at the academy awards and it was basically just a murderer's row of Hollywood heavyweights were involved in this production. Uh, the two producers were Hal B. Wallace and Daryl Zanuck. Wallace was a guy who was nominated 16 times for Best Picture as a producer, winning, wow. for, Ca- winning for Casablanca. Um, other films include The Adventures of Robin Hood and True Grit. Um, uh, just a total aside, a funnier sad story about Casablanca. When it won... Studio head Jack Warner got up to accept the award, even though Wallace produced it, and that led to Wallace leaving uh, Warner Brothers a few months later. So, uh, <laughs> don't don't screw over your your producers or your your, your talent. Uh, he uh, Wallace also won the Irving G. Thalberg Award uh, twice, mm. which is an honorary award uh, Oscar for producers, and also won the Cecil B. DeMille Award. Daryl Zanuck, the other producer, was nominated twice for Best Picture, winning for All About Eve in 1951. He also won the Irving G. Thalberg Award three times, including the inaugural award. He left Warner Brothers in 1933 and founded 20th Century Pictures, which later bought Fox Studios and became 20th Century Fox, as we know it. His son, Richard Zanuck, was also a famous producer in his own right, helping to launch Spielberg's career as a producer on Jaws and winning an Academy Award for Driving Miss Daisy. Hmm. The director, Mervyn Leroy, uh, was nominated for an Academy Award once as a director, also won two honorary Academy Awards, including, yes, the Irving B. Thalberg, G. <laughs> Thalberg Award. Now, I keep saying this, but only 38 people in the history of Hollywood have ever won this damn thing, so it's mm. actually a pretty big deal. And three of the people who won it uh, for a combined six times were, were involved in this movie. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, director Leroy went on to become head of production at MGM, where he was responsible for the decision to greenlight The Wizard of Oz, which we'll talk about a little later on in this podcast. Uh, The main star of this movie was Edward G. Robinson, became one of the biggest stars of the 30s and 40s, and this is the movie that really kick-started his career. He ended up later in life getting an honorary Academy Award two months after he died, 
basically the Academy's way of saying, oh man, we really screwed up there that we never gave him one. So what's the story of this movie? It's the story of two friends who are low-level criminals, Rico and Joe. Tired of the drudgery in their lives, they decide to move to Chicago, but for entirely different reasons. Rico wants to become this big-time criminal, someone who will have power and... and uh, and fame, and Joe wants to get out of the game entirely and become a dancer. Rico eventually moves up the chain of command by sheer bluster and force of will, and eventually attracts the attention of law enforcement. Joe's become a successful dancer, but Rico doesn't want to let him leave the game, and he's concerned about the things that Joe knows and, you know, all the bad shit he's seen Rico do. So, of course, it inevitably leads to a conflict between them as the cops close in on Rico. What did you think? Well, before I get into that, you said it was a best uh, adapted story. Was this based on a novel? I didn't do the background research on this one. Uh, yes, it was based on... Um, I don't have the name of that. Yeah, but it, it was based uh, on a... Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I liked it, but I was kind of bored throughout. And it's, it's through no fault of the film in itself but I've just seen this story so many times. I mean, it's almost a beat-for-beat... It's a beat-for-beat Al Pacino Scarface. Yeah. Of course, there's a lot more violence and uh, sex and things like that, but it was just uh, so formulaic, but I have to put myself in the mindset of somebody seeing this in 1931... And at the time, it was completely original because there weren't gangsters like this until this time. So I kind of tried to put myself in that frame of mind. But at the end of the day, I was just kind of checking my phone, waiting for this movie to end and just to say that I saw Little Caesar. Yeah, I I kind of agree. Although, as you say, I mean, yeah, it it was formulaic, but it kind of created the formula so exactly, it, yeah. it, because it's from 1931 and you're right like all the tropes are there um, you know they're the rise and fall structure the uh, along with a couple of other movies of the time including actually uh, the original Scarface which right, would have been right. a couple of years later I think it really did help sort of create the gangster movie but yeah seeing it now it, it doesn't seem original at all mm-hmm. um and and but the I mean the character one thing that I did like about the character the character of Rico, he is just so single minded and tough, and mm-hmm. just the way he sort of gets through everything. You can almost see why censors would worry about a movie like that sort of glamorizing the criminal, right? Yeah. I mean I, I love the scene where uh, I think my favorite scene in the whole movie is when the rival gang attempts to kill Rico in a drive by and he gets <laughs> shot in the arm, and all he does is sort of slump down a little bit and then yell back at them, "Fine shot, you are." <laughs> <laughs> Because yeah. they missed him and they didn't kill him. <laughs> That's just great. <laughs> yeah, um, the friendship between uh, Rico and uh, the other Joe. character. Joe. Joe, of course, yeah. Uh, the friendship between Rico and Joe almost came off as uh, a little homosexual. Apparently, actually, when I was doing research, I, I found out that the... Oh, yes, actually, yeah, it was based on a book because the guy who wrote the book actually wrote a letter to Warner Brothers complaining about that. Mm. Oh, okay. Complaining that uh, they had turned his character into a homosexual. Um, and so 
You're right. It definitely seems like you weren't the only one who got those sort of undertones. Whether whether or not that was intended, I don't know, but uh, that's it's certainly been pointed out. Because the whole time Rico is like, ah, women, what are they good for? Yep. And, blah, blah, blah. and on one on one side, you could see somebody just being like, oh, you know, it's it's distracting me from my main goal of making as much money as I possibly can and achieving all the power that I possibly can. So I don't want any distractions. But on the other avenue, I mean, he was really into Joe. Like, he was, he was really into him. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely possible that the, that those undertones were were intended. And that'd be uh, a ni- that'd be a nice little nuance for his character if that were true, because you know exactly he, like, if they'd he, been able to, because even though it, it was pre-code, that it was still obviously socially accepted behavior at that time. It, it, it wouldn't have been able to really lean into that if they had. You're right; that would have been made him much more interesting. Yeah, because so many people that are repressed like that tend to lash out in violent ways. So that would have been, yeah, that that adds a little bit of nuance to the character that was really lacking nuance because he was so uh, one-dimensional. Yeah, yeah, because obviously, yeah, nobody in the 1930s could have been could have been open, so they would have had to repress that. I, I did love, I, I like the opening. Uh, sorry, the, the the concluding scene as well. I love that when they when the cops finally track him down, he's actually hiding behind a massive billboard of Joe, yeah. of Joe, who's was there with his dancing partner for for their dancing show. I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, and I did like the, like he he had. I mean, you know, pride comes before the fall, and there's no better example than this because he could have gotten away scot free because he was just living in that flop house. But when he saw the headlines that called Rico a coward, he had to actually phone up the police officer <laughs> yeah. and say, I'm coming for you, which is the dumbest fucking move you could possibly make, and that ultimately leads to his death. So, next up, we have King Kong. It's released by Radio Pictures, which would eventually become known as RKO, which released some of the best movies of the 30s and 40s. It was directed by Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Shudsack, written by James Creelman and Ruth Rose, and it stars Fay Ray, Robert Armstrong, Bruce Cabot, and Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. It's number 41 on the AFI Top 100 Films list. It's also number 24 on the list of 100 Years, 100 Passions for the romance between Fay Ray and Kong, which is really fucking weird. <laughs> it tells the story of an extremely overzealous and reckless director who will stop at literally nothing to capture the most exotic animals on the most remote locations and commit them to film. He basically kidnaps a homeless girl, Faye Ray, and <laughs> puts her on a boat to some unknown island. There they find a tribe of ancient peoples who regularly sacrifice their women to Kong, a gigantic gorilla-type creature. There are battles, monster fights, dinosaurs, and casualties galore. They manage to bring Kong back to New York, only to see him wreak havoc on the city. This is also banned in Nazi Germany, although it was reported to be one of Hitler's favorite films. Go figure. Really? It was banned in Nazi Germany? And I had the pleasure of seeing a special screening of this on, uh, in AMC uh, right before all the theaters shut down. So that might be the last movie I ever get to see in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not, but we'll see. Right now, it's 
looking like it's the last movie I get to see in theaters for a long time. But that said, it uh, if it all comes to shit and King Kong's the last movie I saw in theaters, it's the first time it was released in theaters in over 60 years, which is really cool. And uh, so yeah, so if it if that's the end, so be it. I'm I'm fine with that. So I'm I'm sure everybody's familiar with King Kong, but I've never actually seen this movie all the way through. I don't think I'm familiar with all the set pieces. Uh, what did you think? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I I think this was the, pretty sure this was the first time I'd, I'd seen it. I've seen obviously the um, the the recent one and the 1976 one, but I'm pretty mm. sure this is the first time I'd ever seen this one. Uh, I mean, setting aside all the sort of racism and sexism, uh, which you kind of have to do a lot with movies of this era, it's incredibly well made. I mm-hmm. mean, and I just got the sense watching it that it really was kind of the first big popcorn flick blockbuster. It's just so professional from the like the lighting to the sound to the script to the efficiency of the editing. For me, it, it seemed almost watching it that this was the moment that big studio Hollywood truly arrived. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we'd had the big war movies before, but but this felt different somehow. So, um, yeah, I, w- I was really impressed. It must have been a monumental undertaking in, in, uh, in 1933, just the sets and the extras in some of the scenes, like that, that, that scene where Anne is first sacrificed all the extras and those massive mm-hmm. sets, that, and that was all just backlot stuff that they built. Which, uh, they're just massive in scope, um, and yeah, sure. I mean, some of the special effects are a little bit laughable by by twenty twenty standards, uh, but we're also talking eighty seven years ago. I right. looked it up; they barely had sliced bread then. Sliced bread <laughs> was invented in nineteen twenty eight, so it was just invented. So that's the <laughs> seriously that's that's the level of technological innovations at the time. So putting that into consideration, the special effects were were actually pretty good. The human love story made no sense whatsoever. The, no, uh, it didn't. <laughs> I, I guess he was like the first mate or whatever that was on the ship. And after meeting Faye Ray's character for like a, a day and a half, he's just like, well, I guess I love you. <laughs> and then they just fall madly in love with one another. <laughs> yeah, after he's been incredibly mean to her the whole time. He slaps her. He slaps yeah. her in the face in the very yeah. first scene. Now, now uh, to his credit, he, he didn't know she was standing there. But still, <laughs> he backhands her in the face. And it takes him like a minute and a half to apologize. He's like, oh, I guess I got you pretty good there, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, th- I mean, this was some of the sexism that was just prevalent there. And then the other, I mean, the director guy was Denim or whatever. He um, is just, a, a, as you said, he basically kidnaps her off of the street. He's <laughs> he's putting her in nothing but dangerous positions the entire time. And the entire movie, she's going, oh, he's such a great guy. I'll do anything for him. Why? Right. But that, was, that was sort of a 1930s view on women back then. Just, just horrible. Uh, I will, will say also on the negative tone, I did start to get a little bored with just the monotony of scene after scene of, oh, here's a different monster who's coming mm-hmm. to steal and, and King Kong has to fight them off. So the the story bogged down a little bit in the in the middle 
to the end section when they're when they're still on the island. But uh, but I will stand by my my initial impression that it was it was just yeah story aside and as I said racism and sexism aside it was just an incredibly well made movie for for 1933. Yeah, I mean there was some really like scenes that just would not fly today. Like when Kong has her in his little cave and he starts like picking her clothes off and there's like this little music like and his finger and his fingers start wiggling back and forth like he's about a finger and uh like you can see her areolas through that dress like, this is definitely pre-code pre-code yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah they could definitely get away with that kind of shit but yeah it was visually stunning um while i was at the screening they had a uh intro and an outro of one of these guys from the afi the American Film Institute, who was kind of like explaining how it got made, and it all rose from just uh, a dream that Marion C. Cooper had about a giant gorilla, and he's like, "I have to go out and make this movie right now." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that strikes me just about all these movies in the '30s is just the audacity of some of this. I mean, if the '20s was all about the filmmakers kind of finding their footing and, and trying to figure out how to make good movies. The thirties is basically where they, they shot for the moon. Exactly. It, it, anything seemed possible. They could really just whatever they wanted to try to film, they, they could and did go for it. And, and it, it, you know, this was obviously the sort of the beginning of what they call the golden age of Hollywood, because also you're talking about people going to see these movies in, in four and 5,000 seat movie theaters. I mean, yeah. think about uh, some of, the, the Fox theaters. There's one of the one of the best old ones is in Detroit. If anybody ever is in Detroit, absolutely go to try see something. I mean, it's a it's um it's no longer a movie theater. It's it's now just a, a theater for for live shows. But it's a five thousand seat, incredibly ornate, unbelievable. Even just look up pictures online. It's unbelievable. And this was the kind of thing that people were going to see movies in. And so you can imagine that for these Hollywood filmmakers, it seemed like the sky was the limit in the 30s. And that's that was, for me, the, the sort of hallmark of this decade of, of filmmaking. And, and King Kong is obviously one of those movies that stands out in that way. Yeah, and I found myself really rooting for Kong, even though I knew how the movie was going to end, obviously. Like, the humans in this movie fucking suck. Oh, they're horrible. Like, yeah. Like, they, they see a stegosaurus and rather than be like, oh, this is a magnificent yeah, beast. They just kill it. Yeah, for no reason. It wasn't even charging at him. Yeah, they just start shooting at yeah. it. Yeah. Instead of, oh, wow, here's you know, a whole new species that hasn't existed on Earth in a while. Yeah, let's just kill it. Oh, and they keep shooting it. Keep shooting it. Even if it's like, even when it's having its like death rattle, they're like, yeah. oh, he's not gone yet. Let me put another one in his eye. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely that Simpsons man. Stop, stop. He's already yeah. dead. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, just the, the how expressive they were able to make Kong. And, uh, yeah, when they were firing at him on when he was on top of the Empire State Building, it was... Uh, I really felt bad for the dude. Like, he didn't want to be there. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, he eats, he eats people and throws this one random chick out of a building because he's 
because she's not blonde, but... <laughs> Although he never didn't, didn't ever really eat people. He would just, as he, he'd grab people, stick them in his mouth for a little while to, I guess, just to prove he could do it, and then rip them and throw them on the ground again. Yeah, he just wants so to see funny. how they taste. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how about this one? Mm, no, no, a little underground. Yeah. Mm, teriyaki sauce, no. It was, yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I was definitely impressed, and I'm glad I actually got to see it in theaters. Yeah, I'm sure that must have been... A, a great experience. All right, well, let's move on to another 1933 movie, Duck Soup. Your Excellency, I thought you left. One hundred movies list, and then got upgraded to number sixty on the tenth anniversary list. So unlike the uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, this one moved up instead of getting bumped off, and that actually, I think actually reflects its status as a movie whose reputation has grown over time. When it first came out, it wasn't actually as well received as some of their previous movies, like Animal Crackers, Monkey Business, or Horse Feathers. Uh, obviously, they had <laughs> quite the zoological theme to their titles. <laughs> So, who were the Marx Brothers? Well, they were a comedy group of five brothers, Chico, Harpo, Groucho, Gummo, and Zeppo were their stage names, although Gummo had stopped performing by the time of Duck Soup, and this would be Zeppo's last movie. So, the three main brothers, Chico, Harpo, Harpo and Groucho, uh, were the oldest three. Uh, their mother came from a family of performers, and the brothers eventually formed a comedy troupe where their stage shows became increasingly popular at the perfect time, just at the advent of talkies. They signed a deal with Paramount, and they were the biggest name in comedy early on in the talkie era. Eventually, they went their separate ways, but all were fairly successful in various endeavors. Uh, they were and continue to be extremely influential for generations of comedians and filmmakers from Woody Allen to Monty Python to even Judd Apatow. Just so many people look back and, and say that the Marx Brothers were a massive inspiration. So, Duck Soup. The story of Duck Soup is ridiculous. <laughs> uh, the country of Fredonia is in financial trouble. Their main benefactor, Mrs. Teasdale, will only foot the bill if Rufus T. Firefly, played by <laughs> Groucho, is named the new leader. At the same time, Ambassador Trentino of neighboring Sylvania is trying to scheme to take over Fredonia by marrying Teasdale. Firefly keeps getting in the way, insults are exchanged, and eventually the countries go to war. That's basically the plot. Uh, what, what did you think? I thought it was hilarious. Uh, I've never seen a Marx Brothers movie. You know, I always... The, the extent of my Marx Brothers knowledge was just those little things you get as a kid with the glasses and the nose and the mustache. I don't, yeah. even, I don't even know if kids do that anymore. But. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or the line from uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when uh, Sean Connery uh, has his, his special book with all the stuff about the Grail, and when Harrison Ford screws up and it gets taken back to the Nazis, uh, 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 Sean Connery's character goes, I should have mailed it to the Marx Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just I always think of the Marx Brothers, that line whenever I hear the Marx Brothers. Continue. <laughs> yeah, it was basically a series, it was like a sketch comedy movie because like the plot doesn't make any sense whatsoever and but i love how it seems like there's this established world of fredonia that you know seems like an actual 
I don't know, European country. But then it's like you just drop the Marx Brothers in as they are, and then they just start fucking with everybody. <laughs> and yeah, uh, I thought it was just like it, the the comedy was so quick and so clever. It was like every joke built on the last joke, and the the dialogue was just so snappy. And you would have like a five minute long run of jokes, but the last one has nothing to do with the first one. It's just like a chain of just joke after joke that builds and builds and builds on puns and like um, mispronunciation of words and things like that. Like, I'm glad I watched it with uh, the closed captioning on because I probably wouldn't have caught as many uh, puns as I would have if I just watched it without those. Yeah, he's especially Groucho just speaks so quickly. I, I will say of the comedy, I, I enjoyed I, I enjoyed most of it. Harpo's prop comedy didn't really do much for me. Okay. I, 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 I didn't, I don't know, that just didn't land for me. I didn't find any of it really funny mm. uh, for, for whatever reason. Um, maybe I'm just not a fan of prop comics. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but and, uh, obviously each, each one of the Marx Brothers kind of has their own shtick. And that was, that's obviously Harpo's is just to keep pulling random shit out of his, out of his vest and, and do <laughs> stuff. And yeah, that, that didn't do much for me. But some, yeah, some of the lines were just fantastic. And for me, it wasn't even the long string. It was just the random lines that were coming would come out of nowhere like um, the mrs teasdale says something about not being able to to see something and gretchen goes well who are you gonna believe me or your own eyes yeah just his great little kind of clever lines like that i loved um and, and just a, a funny side note in in the original script the country that Fridona goes to war with is named Amnesia instead of Sylvania. <laughs> and the main antagonist was supposed to be Ambassador Frankenstein of Amnesia instead of Ambassador <laughs> Trentino of Sylvania. I don't know why they changed it, because that is much funnier. <laughs> Having a country named Amnesia, that's yeah. fantastic. See, actually, I, I liked Harpo's uh, physical comedy. Um, it didn't make me laugh out loud as much as uh, Groucho did, but... Um, I guess it's because we've seen these 20s movies where um, all you could do was physical comedy because there wasn't any dialogue. So I think I appreciated the evolution between, you know, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and uh, Harry Lloyd. And I could see the natural evolution from them to Harpo and uh, the interplay between him and Chico in that poor, poor lemonade stand guy. <laughs> I felt so they were just fucking with it for no reason. <laughs> for no reason, yeah. And and his use of the scissors just made me crack. That was the one thing that just made me crack up. Like, why does he have this obsession with just sniffing? Cutting things. <laughs> like when he, threw, when he lights the cigar for the guy and then he cuts the end of the cigar when he's not looking. I don't, I don't know. I thought it was funny. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it didn't land as much for me, but I could see how it would be humorous. I, th- I, th- I did think it was one of the things. Maybe for me, it was partly that. Uh, I mean, there's obviously, obviously mockery of world leaders and politics and warmongers in general. Mm, right. Uh, but I didn't find the political message very pointed. I, it wasn't intended to be. I don't think. I, right. I think they were just trying to make jokes in a movie about politics rather than trying to make a movie about politics that's funny. If you know, right. if you know what I mean. And being a bit of a political junkie, I guess I was maybe hoping for a little bit more. But I, there, it was still very funny. But. Maybe Maybe maybe, oh, so my, maybe my expectations were too high. So you were hoping it'd be like a little more subversive. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, see, I, yeah, I didn't really have any expectations because I always just thought they were going to do slapstick, and that's kind of what they did. And everything that Groucho said just kind of added to that. And uh, um, uh, who played Tuesday? Oh, Mar- yeah, Margaret Dumont, I thought, was an excellent straight woman through the whole yes. thing. yeah. Like, to keep a straight face while <laughs> Groucho is just... just Calling her, <laughs> calling her fat left and right, even though you she's. Got, a, you got to wonder how many takes they would have had to do stuff like that. Yeah. Oh shit! And yeah, we'd be totally remiss if we didn't mention that mirror scene. The mirror scene. I was just about yeah. to mention it. Yeah. I had to look up how they did that because, of course, at first I thought it was just mirror work, but when uh, Groucho does the spin and the other guy doesn't, I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing yeah it, it was you know by by far the standout scene in the, in the whole movie it was really incredible the only thing i can figure is there was no sound in that scene there was no dialogue or music so That's the right. only the only thing i can figure is that somebody was off screen giving them directions as they were doing it because no matter how many times you rehearse you're not going to be able to match that i mean i I can't can't imagine doing that well when when i was doing my research on the movie apparently there were similar type mirror scenes in some other movies uh before or around the same time but also actually apparently the whole mirror thing was a part of their early vaudeville act so so maybe it was something that they were just so good at because they had done so many repetitions of Mm. that they were used to it i mean as i said other comedians had also done similar things so it's unclear who deserves ultimate credit for creating this idea but obviously they were well rehearsed and well practiced with this and it showed man it was it was incredible Plus, they are real life brothers, which gives them a leg up. And I didn't know they were real life brothers. And they kind of look alike too when when they're all wearing the Groucho mask. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, they they look completely different until they all try to look like Groucho, and then you couldn't tell them apart. Yeah, Yeah. that was amazing. So yeah, them actually being brothers, I always thought it was just for the stage, like the way you know wrestling has the Hardy Boys. No, actually, the Hardy Boys are real brothers, like Edge and Christian. Yeah. So (laughs) anyway, (laughs) that's silly off topic, but um, yeah. the fact that they had that kind of practice, years and years of practice, yeah, I guess uh, that's what did it for them. But I was, yeah, I was floored when I saw that. Yeah, it was, yeah, definitely a famous, a famous scene for for a very good reason. So let's move on to the next one. All right, swing time. It's another uh, another radio picture slash RKO joint. Came out in 1936. It's a musical comedy starring the iconic and prolific duo of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers who starred in eight films over this decade together, which is unheard of these days. Uh, it was directed by George Stevens, written by Howard Lindsay, Alan Scott, et al. Et al. is a fancy way of saying in others. It's uh, number 90 on the AFI Top 100 list, and it's known for its flashy dance numbers and the innate chemistry between Rogers and Astaire. Uh, the plot... His leaves leaves me wanting. Uh, it just basically serves as segues between the musical numbers, which a lot of musicals are. But um, yeah, the plot's basically uh, Fred Astaire plays this guy Lucky, who's an expert dancer and gambler. Uh, 
He's engaged to this girl through a series of gags. He's late for his wedding, and the father of the bride tells him that he needs to raise $25,000 to marry his daughter. So he sets out to the big city to do that. Uh, He meets Ginger Rogers along the way. They start falling in love to the point where he doesn't love his fiancée anymore, and he but he doesn't have the balls to break it off until it's too late. Then it turns out being not too late, and they get together in a scene where they just everybody in the cast just laughs for like six minutes straight, and they live happily ever after. What do you think of it? Uh, this was this the, the very first... Um, actually, no, it's not the first Fred Astaire movie. I, I've seen... Uh, what was it? Uh, Grand Hotel? Not Grand Hotel. Um, anyway, sorry. It's one of the first Fred Astaire movies that, <laughs> that I've ever seen. And, I mean, he's just a damn magician. The way he floats around on the dance floor, the, the guy just, just glides. He's just incredible to watch. Right. And, and Ginger Rogers, too. I mean, even though sometimes her footwork isn't quite as intricate in the tap dancing sequence. Well, she's doing it in heels. That's what I was going to say. She gets the, <laughs> the extra degree of difficulty points for it. How the hell did she do all that in, in high heels? It's unbelievable. So, yeah, I was impressed with the with the dance sequences. I didn't know that a couple of famous jazz standards, inclu- including the amazing The Way You Look Tonight, was from this movie. I mean, that's mm. just such a great tune. Right. Um, I didn't realize that that's where it started with and that it was originally sung by Fred Astaire. So yeah, I was impressed with the singing and dancing. The um, the story, as you said, was was a little lackluster, but whatever. Um, I'd I'd heard the critique before that Astaire wasn't a great singer or actor, and yeah, he's not an amazing singer, but I actually thought his acting was fine. I, I thought he was totally charming in yeah, that role. Too. I mean, maybe he doesn't have a lot of a lot of uh, versatility as the kind of actor he was, but but in that role, I thought he was he was great. For me, I really enjoyed the interplay between Victor Moore, who played Pop, and Helen Broderick, who played Mabel. They absolutely stole the show for me. Uh, Every time uh, uh, Mabel put Pop down, it reminded me of uh, Fred and Ethel from another I Love Lucy reference. But yeah, just like the old crotchety couple who who are so in love with one another that they don't mind putting each other down in public just because, you know, they're not gonna break up, so who gives a shit? And they were just so hilarious to me. Their chemistry was way better than Astaire and Rogers, and they're one of the most iconic duos in Hollywood history. Yeah, I agree. They, yeah, they were definitely the the comedic relief throughout. There, that one scene where Fred Astaire gets Ginger Rogers' uh, dance instructor job back by doing this incredible dance sequence, <laughs> and so then those two get up on the stage and try to oh, do yeah. the same thing and end up like wrecking the fence and tripping over themselves. <laughs> that had me laughing out loud and roll. That was so funny. Yeah, and even even the way Fred Astaire just walks normally in this movie it looks like he's just gliding. Oh yeah, the, yeah. yeah the, he was just an incredible physical actor. Yeah, I, I they, will say, if there's ever a, a Fred Astaire biopic, maybe there has been one. Uh, he absolutely has to be played by Vincent Cassell. It, it looks exactly like. Oh, him. okay. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> it looks and, just uh, like him, and that that guy can kind of move around the same way too. So. Yeah, and I didn't know this until I looked it up later, but uh, the mailman from the uh, claymation Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and uh, Santa Claus Coming to Town um, movies 
that was Fred Astaire, and the dude looks just like Fred Astaire in uh, stop motion form. Oh yeah, huh, very so interesting. Yeah. Okay, because I remember watching those when I was a kid. My mom was always like, "Oh, there's yeah, there's Fred Astaire," and I had no idea who the hell Fred Astaire was. But yeah, looking at that, looking at that now, uh, yeah, it's, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that's cool. I, I will say, um, after the, the jazz singer in our 20s podcast in, in this go. movie, <laughs> uh, more blackface. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even if it was meant as a tribute of sorts to Bojangles Robinson, who I yeah. guess was apparently a friend of Fred Astaire, it's still, yikes, it's still uh, <laughs> it's a little cringe-inducing to watch. Yeah, I rolled my eyes. I was like, oh, my God, not more blackface. Yeah. <laughs> Especially at the very beginning when the dancers get off stage and the curtain opens and it's like this big caricature of a black person in the tw- in the twenties and thirties and uh, like with, with the big horrible. the big lips and then like uh, the shoes part it's like oh yeah their faces are black as shoes and they're like oh god yeah <laughs> can we not please <laughs> yeah nineteen uh, thirties yeah. so uh, yeah I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, the dance sequences, just watch it. You can understand why Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers were as popular as they were, uh, just in terms of performers. Yeah, and I know you've said a couple times on this podcast already that you're not a fan of musicals in general. So was this uh, was this to your liking more? Uh, yeah, this one, this one wasn't bad because I didn't get hung up on the fact that they were singing songs at random times. Mm. It kind of seemed to fit. Right. I, I think my main problem with musicals is that it just seems so artificial in random places that people just start singing for no apparent reason when there's when there's no real need to. But in this case, I mean, it's a movie about these singers and dancers, so it kind of fit in a way. So, it, it, yeah, it didn't jar me in this movie as it does in some other musicals. All right, cool. So we're going to turn you by the time this, <laughs> this uh, <laughs> Century series is over, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Apologies for the interruption, and thanks for listening so far. As it turns out, the bandwidth on our site simply ain't big enough to hold this podcast down. To listen to the second half of our podcast on the 1930s, simply click the link located below the one you clicked to listen to this. We apologize for any inconvenience this may cause to you or your family. See y'all on side B.